When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com/people today. Welcome to the Ruler podcast. My name's Jack Thurston, and this is the podcast for issue 45 of Ruler magazine. And to talk about the issue I have with me around the table here at Ruler, Guy Andrews, founding editor of the magazine, and Ian Cleverly, the managing editor. Hello, Jack. How are you? Very well, thank you. And how many you? How many issues have we done podcasts of now, then, if this is 46? I, 45. 45. I can't tell you the answer to that, hmm. but I imagine it is somewhere between 10 and 20 Let's get stuck into the current issue with the, the way we start off the podcast these days is by picking out our favourite photographs or photo spreads from the magazine from this issue. It's kind of selfish because it is from my feature, but then it's not because it's Tess's photographs and it's, and it's uh, of um, the MTN Quebec team gumboot dancing in a hotel car park in Johannesburg. And uh, it just, it's just an absolute joy. You've got the fantastic teacher at the front you got the whole team doing their best to slap their wellingtons in the background and uh, j- just cyclist dancing you know what's not to like fabulous guy are you going to pick a second second choice or is, is that is that got to be it uh i th- well I, I really like uh, this is again this is a bit uh, this is a bit self-referential but i quite like the opening spread of the, the calf four piece as well um but i'm sure we're going to talk about yeah. that but um yeah there's a couple i actually they, they they were just kissing and broke apart and it's um it's just as the race had passed through the cafe it's, it's, it's a nice shot i'm gonna go for a shot inside the bus of the saxo tinkoff team which i just think is a beautiful composition and it's quite a rare glimpse i think of what it's like to be on the inside and you can see the crowds all outside in the sunshine and then there's this sort of darkened atmosphere in the bus and it's a, you've done it as a sort of full bleed double page spread and I just think it's, it's really a great moment and obviously they're looking really depressed because they realise they've just lost the Tour de France um, and uh, it gives you a taste of what it, what it must be like to be in that situation as well as being a tremendous photograph. But let's move on to your piece, Guy, the, the Carrefour de l'Arbre, which is the opening uh, piece in the, in, in the magazine. This is a place I've been to a number of times, mm. um, but it's changed. It's over changed, the years. changed an awful lot, yeah. First of all, I'd just like to thank um, Teddy Cutler, who came in to do some work experience with us, and he was, um, he was an absolute uh, pleasure to work with, and he, he was really helpful, um, certainly putting together this feature in particular. Um, the Carrefour, yeah, it's. Um, 
it's it's been around on the race uh, it's actually you know a recent addition to the race but it's uh, it's still a pivotal point and we've we, we at the same time last year this is the race Paris-Roubaix sorry Paris-Roubaix yeah. yeah and at the same time last year we did a feature on Aremberg and it's a similar sort of approach that we took to the CAFOR where we've spoken to ex-riders and um, current riders about their experiences um, riding through the CAFOR but more importantly, what I found quite interesting is we spent um, we spent about forty eight hours around the Carrefour last year, uh, getting the pictures that appear in the magazine, including the cover shot um, for the subscriber issue. But um, what's interesting about the Carrefour is it, it's it's locked down now. It's it's kind of it's almost like a police state at the Carrefour because of the troubles that they had in two thousand and nine, which were considerable and weren't particularly publicised at the time. Uh, in retrospect, they they had to be because the the mayor stepped forward, the mayor of the the locality, and um, basically banned the race from coming again. That was his first point, and then he climbed down slightly once uh, once the ASO and the organisation had decided that they would they would meet some of his demands. Two thousand and nine was the low point. Uh, mm. Let's put it that way. Mm. Um, it was it was pretty terrible. But it, it, it's a, it's a tricky balance, and it's a tricky balance with bike racing in general when you've got somewhere like. Uh, the Carrefour or Alpe d'Huez or Aremberg Forest or um, for a greater or less extent the, 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 the Moor and Gerardsberg and you know it's, it's, it's a point, it's an iconic point at which the fans want to descend upon as a result they tend to be quite drunk and quite rowdy and unfortunately sometimes people get a bit out of hand when they're quite Do you think there's a reason why it happened after several years at which that this race has been held here it did it just get bigger and bigger it just, more, yeah. it just was it just got bigger accumulation bigger. I, I it became th- the place that you had to go yeah kind of i think 2009 was particularly good weather so there was a bit of a holiday sort of feel to the race that year um i think you're right i think yeah there had been a build-up of interest in the cow four i think and also where it is it's, it's so close to belgium so that's 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 the point really is, is mm. it, it was a, it's a point out which it's, it's pivotal for the race but it's also pivotal i think for the fans and you it's can not say, it's not an, an appealing place is it i mean when you go to watch <laughs> you know go to camp yourself on the alp d'Huez, at least you're up there in the beautiful mountains with the fresh air and everything like that it's a pretty stark bleak place you've got these sort of fields that are in, invariably muddy with a yeah. few sprouts you know of, yeah. of whatever the crop is probably winter wheat coming up through yeah. the ground it's it's not a nice place to hang out it's not in lots of respects but in other respects it's it's to a bike racing fan it just it just screams belgium at you doesn't it yeah it, it, it's france oh, yes yeah, sorry france <laughs> yes yeah, not quite belgium but it, it's that that's the you feel like you're in belgium yeah, yeah. oh yeah, yeah, yeah you're yeah. surrounded by so many but that's the point we're making in the features is, is that you could be you could be anywhere in that in the, in that area um i think i think i don't know for me you go when you go to the to um to the Carrefour, it's it's very different to all the other sectors partly for the reason that ian's just pointed out that it, that it just tells you an awful lot about the the race itself just by being there but I think more than that. I think it's it's the stones themselves are they're so bad, and the 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 act of walking across them is is this sounds too. I don't want to sound too wanky about it, but basically, it feels like you you realise how tough it is. You know, you realise how hard it mm. is just by seeing what's in front of you. And there's also that corner. And there's the corner, yeah, yeah. yeah. Because there aren't a huge amount of corners on paved sections are there like that's a 90 no. degree turn isn't yeah it? yeah that's mm. i think that's one of the worst ones yeah yeah mainly because there's only one line through it 
or you know, well, there's a few, but there's one good line through it. Yeah. So you have yeah. to be you have to be careful. Depending on how many people have stood on the road in front of yeah, you. Yeah. Yeah. The photographs which are by Taz Darling really capture the the bleakness, but I guess also the affection that people have for for yeah. being there, which is uh, which is which is a nice thing. I think so. I think I think that the the mood of the place is. Um, as I said earlier, the mood of the place has changed an awful lot because of the the police presence. But um, generally speaking, it hasn't prevented people going on race day. Um, and would you recommend people to go there? Honestly, actually, I, yeah, I would because. But I would actually go to the the, the sector that follows it because you know, Cafour itself is very difficult to get off it. And you know, actually, no, sorry, I would, I would recommend it. Yeah, it's because I think the the one thing about Cafour, and this is the one th- reason why I think a lot of people go there, is that the race by the time it gets there is totally shot to pieces. If you get through the Cafour, you're not going to pack. Basically, you're going to ride to the velodrome, so you're going to get sixty riders coming through probably more and they're going to be all over the road so it's a bit like watching a time trial at the tour um you get to see a lot of people which and, is the and prob- you do get a good close look at the the final stage the, of the race yeah, with who, whoever's yeah. left there yeah. is going to have the winner in yeah. that group and I, I, again i won't i won't give away too much because it's in in the feature but i think a lot of most of the riders respect and recognize that fact and they know that that, that, that it's a knife edge that part of the race because it can go either way for them I thought Cancellara's take on it was interesting because you, you kind of always assume that the car four is where it's make or break time, and he sort of says, "Oh no, I have it sorted out before, you know, or after." But it's like, "Well, okay, you know, yeah. respect to Fabian." I, th- I think that's the thing. It's, it's interesting talking to different riders and their opinions of it because some like it and some don't. And I think, again, to say we we we, we spoke to Juan Antonio Flesher as well in, in the feature, and he had really mixed fortunes there he had some terrible times he had some crashes he had some mistakes he had all sorts but his his affection for it is is um you know it's, it's plain to see but it's um but fabian doesn't really seem to like it that much he's he's got a kind of love-hate relationship with the caffle which i find quite quite interesting because i think to ride that you've got to like it because it's it's brutal you know mm. it really is well maybe you just want to get the hell out of there as soon well, as you can yeah, isn't yeah, it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. ian You've been to South Africa. Yes, lucky me. Uh, went over to see the MTN Quebecer team, who are, of course, South African, although they do have a very large German contingent, both rider-wise and um, backroom staff. But um, a very interesting team in, in so many ways, so many stories. I mean, the African riders they got coming through, um, everybody's pretty convinced that they're going to be a big big thing within give them another two or three years to learn the ropes and uh, they'll be contenders they got guys from especially from Ethiopia and Eritrea who are just demon climbers and they're progressing very nicely so they're just uh, just getting the hang of it how are they oh. recruiting uh, uh, talent m- most of them the African riders are coming via the UCI's African Training Centre in, I don't know how to pronounce this, Pochestrum, something like that, <clears throat> which is um, in South Africa. Um, and there's a guy who runs that called JP Van Zyl, who um, is a former South African track rider. So most of their recruits have done a bit of time there. Learned, this is, this is to, the, to the MTN Quebec team, right? 
and then yeah. and then they've been re- yeah, recruited yeah. by MCM but it, I mean, from there. Because you, you talk to a guy called Doug Ryder, yeah. who is the who's the, uh, the team boss, team yeah. boss, and he was talking about picking up people who were weren't quite making the grade at the top level in running and saying, "Well, give me two or three years with these folks on a bike, and uh, I'll turn them into a bike racer." Well, that's what they're looking at uh, in so much as especially in kenya you you've got uh, and thomas uh, campana who is the the ds the uh, formerly the ds at uh, Cervelo, of course campana says you know you've got hundreds of, of kenyan middle and long distance runners who aren't quite good enough to be very very top but they still got great great potential why not convert them to bikes um so that's a, that's a sort of ongoing project and there's, there's another guy who is from singapore whose name escapes me um who i learned about last week who is actually he seems to be in the forefront of doing that he's 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 gone over to kenya set up a base there and is converting kenyan runners to bikes now the problem there is of course is you haven't got the the history the culture you know you've got people that have just like never ridden a bike before in their life and it's a it's a lot to take on board and and as a european you kind of you know at age five whatever you're on a bike and you love your bike and and that's why you become a cyclist so this this is uh just because you've got a good engine and talent as for running it doesn't mean to say you're just gonna you can throw somebody on a bike and they're gonna go well yeah they're gonna take it wholeheartedly they're they're uh it's a, it's a sort of a slightly hit and miss process, I would imagine, but um, I, I suspect that uh, before long they'll um, get some good results out of it. You think it'll work? I think so. Yeah, yeah. You put enough in, you'll get a few out. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. We talked a lot about African cyclists of coming to Europe, but what I thought was interesting in your piece was the exposure to Africa that a lot of these European cyclists riding for that team were getting as a result of riding for that team i mean and we've got to start here with the gumboot dance <laughs> yeah well of course it, it yeah it is a two-way process and and so you've got i think they've got four or five german riders they've got one guy from italy one guy from spain so they're going to their first team camp in johannesburg and what's a more natural thing to do you know, for a South African team than uh, gumboot dancing, which is uh, fabulous. So what, 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 is a, what is a gumboot dance? Con- uh, paint us a picture. Well, it was uh, developed by African miner, uh, South African miners. Um, I've I read various uh, explanations as to its, its, its derivation. As a, you know, some say it was a way of you know, getting messages across or, or, you know, I think it was just a bit of fun, really. But um, it's a lot of slapping, a lot of kicking and slapping involved. And it's very, very fast. Well, it's very fast when they do it, uh, when we do it. Um, they slowed it down somewhat, thankfully. So how do you think that they're enjoying riding for this different type of team, being an African team that does gumbu dances? Any new rider on a team is going to sell you the party line. They're going to go, oh, yes, fantastic being on this team. But the new guys and the guys that had been there a year that are from Europe were, were just going, this is not only so very different from teams they've been on previously, but but a great story uh, in so much as the, the Quebec are part of the part of the sponsor. MTN is a, a massive telecommunications uh, company in, in Africa and Quebec is a charity that provides bicycles to 
people who live in townships who are struggling and it you know it's mobilizing people by by giving them bicycles well they don't give them actually they have to earn them by either collecting plastic bottles or growing trees or and it's a fascinating story all around wherever you go on that team there's a great story i think that's something that helps fans identify with the team that it's a team that has not just you know a brand of some big corporation attached to it but it's has a has a mission that's related to bikes mm. and doing good and i think that'll stand the team in good stead uh, I, th- I certainly find it an appealing team to, to, I think, to root I th- for i think you're dead right and i think the controversy over them not getting a, a giro place this year seeing how the, the the crowd react to them in italy i find that staggering to be honest because Milan Romo last year not only did they walk away with a win but before the race started i i guarantee you all the Italian journalists and most of the crowd were completely taken with them and really focused on them you know they you know apart from the fact obviously that it's unusual to see a black face in the peloton which you know admittedly it is quite unusual it it is about time that there were more uh it's long overdue but I think that that in itself creates a story that 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 everyone can relate to and I think you know that's 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 the strange thing about the 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 fact that they weren't included this year I've got a theory on the Giro thing I think a lot of it's because there were were Italian teams waiting yes I also think it's because Acquaroni was a big fan yeah I think if Acquaroni was still there um, they'd have got the place yeah you you might you might well be right yeah that's that's my feeling on it yeah I mean the fact that they won Milan San Remo their first pro tour race pretty much their first race uh, in Europe and they win it yeah you know I mean that was Team Sky Team Sky could only have dreamt of doing something well exactly like, yeah. and, and that's the thing that, that's, that, I think that's the sad part of the story is, is that the, the athletes deserve better regardless of what other people you know other people's political interests and I think you know cycling unfortunately with, with wild cards there is always going to be political pressure from one part or another I mean in French races it's usually because it's a French team Italian's races it's usually because it's an Italian team the same thing happens I'm sure in the Tour of Britain you know when there's British teams that want to get in it's just the way it goes and unfortunately they're going to have to get over that and I think they will because you know the, the strength of character in the team the, the people that I've met inside the team is, is, is amazing they really want to make it work so you know what do they have to do not to have to rely on wildcard entries to the very biggest races I mean how do you what's the route to get there winning I'm afraid, I mean, it's just the only way isn't it winning yeah. I guess <laughs> keep winning keep winning races how long does it take I mean obviously it depends how much you win but you know I think, what, I think, would you, what would you think do you think that they'll become a I don't part think, of the furniture I don't, I don't think uh, the Giro organisers uh, organize are yes, uh, immune to Twitter pressure and the other things that happen mm. these days I think they'll realise that public opinion is behind the team so let's hope that that will make a big difference. I think it will. I think that's the thing that will sway them in the end. But, you know, we'll see what happens. And the Tour? The Tour have uh, rejected them as well. They've announced the wild cards already. Um, but, I mean, what do they have to do to appeal to the Tour organisers? I mean, the same, the I, same sort I, of Again, thing. I think that's a bit of an own goal because I think, you know, the Tour probably could have picked up where the Giro left, left off and actually won themselves some friends. Yeah, quite surprised. With, with the support. Frankly, I mean, that's the thing is that, you know, I, I ask any one of my friends that's really into bike racing and they really want to see, you know, MTN Quebec do well. Nobody, you know, it's, it's, it's just a great story. It's just brilliant, isn't it? And I think people like them for that. Right. Well, let's uh, move on. Um, a couple of stories, um, profiles, really. Um, profiles in what you do after what next? you've done what, what, you, what you do next um, 
one a rider and one um, a bike maker. So uh, let's let's talk about the ice cream man, Paolo Fornaciari, a Gregario. Colin O'Brien um, goes to some length to uh, distinguish uh, Gregario from domestique, um, which I think is I've always felt that it's a nicer term, and um, I think he does a really good job of explaining. Um, I think, that's my, that, I think that's my favourite piece between the Italian and the and, and, and the and the French approach to um, team teamwork. I think that 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 paragraph where he explains Gregario versus Domestique is my favourite paragraph in the entire issue. Actually, I think yeah. it's beautifully done. Yeah, very uh, good. Where he says a uh, Gregario sounds like somebody you'd want to be your mate, and yeah, Domestique you, sounds like somebody's going to clean your stairs. Basically, yeah, you have a, a pal or a servant. A servant. Yeah. 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 Um, but this this um, former Gregorio is now making ice cream and seems very happy about He's it. He's a world champion. World champion. A world champion ice cream maker. Huh? How about that? So which, which is lovely because, you know, after, was it 10 years he was a pro or something? Yeah. You know, yeah. always in the service of others and no, no kind of recognition really in the long term. But uh, he's made it now. And he's got this lovely, this lovely ice cream shop with all the memorabilia up on the walls and knocking out some fantastic ice cream you, I, you can almost taste it just from reading the feature frankly it's not a tale of woe like some of them have been because let's be honest some cyclists have pretty terrible after careers if you like it seems like he's enjoying his more than he enjoyed his actual own r- r- riding career but you know the point is as well is that, is that we really struggled to find pictures of him uh, racing and we did actually end up finding quite a few once we dug around a fair bit um, but he's that sort of character that was very much in the background of the teams that he rode for. And he rode for the big teams, you know, Mercatoni, you know, and Mapai. And, you know, he rode for big riders. So, you know, you'd have thought you'd have recognised him. But I, I've got to be honest, I didn't. So, no. you know, we had to dig around a fair bit to find... find he's a big old unit as well, isn't he? a big fella, yeah. yeah. It's all that ice cream. Mind you, he looks damn <laughs> fit too, so, you know. Yeah, yeah. We have been criticised in the past of making it look fairly dour. <laughs> and, you know, in all fairness, it... it, it it has been what it has been. I mean, the guy who was the, 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 the chicken farmer. That one was a particular... I mean, visually looked... Farini. Farini and the 58,000 yeah. chickens. Yeah, yeah. Which, which is... was actually, you know, a nice story. It's not, it's not a sad story, particularly. But I think, you know, we have done some pretty sad ones. But moving on to the Lizzie Armistead feature, I mean, she, she starts that by talking about, well, you know, I'm 25. What am I doing? Where, where am I going to go next? And you kind of think, 25? You know, I wish. But... It's you, you. It is going to be a worry, isn't it? It's like how much longer can you go on doing this? And it's not like, you know, in women's cycling, it's not like you're going to make enough to, to have a few years out and uh, and think about what you do next. Mm. You know, they make peanuts, so so that you got you got to think about it. Yeah. She says, "I'm 25. I'm still living with my parents. I'm still a nomad. It's it's uh, yeah, it's not easy." And the next profile is of. Uh a man, Gary Klein, uh, famous as a pioneer of aluminium bicycle frames, who's now unemployed by his own uh, confession um, in, in, in the piece. It's an interesting piece on a number of levels. Um, let's talk about the technical stuff in a, in a minute, um, but it's quite an interesting, you know, just a portrait of a man of like, okay, well, that's, uh, that's what I did. He's got this storage unit full of old frames and tubes and things like that. He can't really face looking at them. Um, and he just wants to have fun mm. again. You know, he's, he's obviously, I guess he's made enough money from, from, uh, from running. I think, I think there's bikes. the big, there's the big difference, yeah, isn't yeah. it? You know, if you've made a few quid, you, you don't have to fret too much. I got the sense that if there were the right proposition was there, he would like to be 
working. He was not just someone who's like, well, I've, I've done my work and now I'm just going to sit back and you know, drink pina coladas. Well, I, I've got sort of theories about this that are always challenged. I mean, from a technical point of view, let's start there if, if, that's, mm. if that's all right. But I think Gary Klein was, um, his bikes were fairly unique um, looking. And, you know, they were, they, were, they were incredibly light and very uh, sort of different looking. So they gained popularity pretty quickly. But the point being is, is that I don't think that aluminium was drawn to a particularly good conclusion because carbon fibre came in fairly soon after, if you look at it historically, and basically took over. So aluminium was kind of shelved. Um, and whether Gary likes it or not, that's what happened. And in some respects, that's kind of a shame. And I think it's interesting that some manufacturers now are looking back to aluminium to make uh, bicycles for a slightly different, slightly different market, slightly different price point. I mean, when Gary was producing frames, and obviously the points made in the article, they were really expensive. I mean, ludicrously expensive. Deliberately expensive. Deliberately. That's expensive. the that's the wonder yeah. of it. What he did is he perfected a technique that hadn't really been used. Well, it had been used, but it hadn't been used to a wider audience. Uh, you know, the, he worked with the um, MIT in in. Um, developing a, a heat treating process which basically you had to do with aluminium when he welded it and I wouldn't say they discovered it because it had been around for a long time but they perfected it from the point of view of small scale production for, for bicycles so you know they, they had something and, and you know regardless of your opinion of the prices of the bikes they were actually different looking they were quite beautiful in some respects that created a market for them and I think as I say I kind of think it's a bit of a shame that aluminium got shelved and nobody makes aluminium bikes because anymore. Klein was bought out by Trek, yeah. and Trek aren't continuing the work that he w- he was doing at the high level, are they? No, not at a high level. I mean, they still make aluminium bikes. I mean, everybody still makes an aluminium bike somewhere in their range. But wh- what I mean is a performance yeah. aluminium bike, yeah. and that was the big difference with the Klein is that it was a performance level bicycle, uh, mountain bike, and road bike. So why did they buy? Klein. Why did Trek buy Klein if they didn't think it had a future? I don't. I couldn't comment exactly, but I reckon one of the reasons was because they realised that Gary's quite a maverick and quite a, a free-thinking spirit, and I think they quite like that at Trek. Believe it or not, I mean it's hard to believe looking from the outside, but when you, you know, I've spent a fair bit of time with the guys from Trek, and and they do tend to like people that think sort of um, for want of a better word outside the box and I think mm. Gary's definitely that character mm. I mean, he although he doesn't give the impression in the piece that he had much input into Trek even though he was under contract with them as a consultant he said well they never called yeah maybe not but I think you know you could you could see his influence when they when they first took over Klein um, so but I think that's the problem is that the new technology came in so everyone moved on so quickly and I think Gary kind of probably got left behind a little bit with that um, because he wasn't a carbon expert, mm. and, th- and that's what they needed. They needed carbon experts then, because everybody wanted carbon fiber. So, where do you think the future of aluminium bikes will be? I think the possibilities for custom build and for um, uh, bespoke niche uh, aluminium is definitely there, because nobody's really doing it. Everyone wants a steel lugged frame at the moment, but that will change because you know the thing is, you can guarantee that if there's a, re- a need for something. Um, a desire rather than a need sorry then then someone will start doing it someone what, what would be it. the virtues of uh, a high end aluminium bike uh, in, in uh, 2014 or easy it's easy to manufacture uh, it's uh, relatively inexpensive um, yeah and it's light and do you think the technology needs to be pushed on some more with some more innovation or is it just simply going back to doing what they did I'm no expert in the technology I know that the hydroforming 
issues that came in later in its 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 lifespan, if you like, with manufacturers were getting quite interesting. You know what they could actually do with the material itself. Specialisers started making aluminium again at, at a fairly high level. You know, it's they're, they're, they're performance bikes, if you like. Um, and I say Trek makes some bikes in their range that are out of aluminium. Cannondale obviously used to. They don't now, but you know, I think more people will cotton onto it the minute somebody, a small niche manufacturer, starts making them and doing well with them. Because I think you know, I think there are there, there is a market for them, I and mean, there are people that don't want a carbon bike for one reason or another. And you know, titanium is very expensive. Steel now, bespoke steel is very expensive. Aluminium might be the option. If you want a no fuss, no nonsense, custom built frame, that might be the answer. Right. Well, let's uh, move on. We've got some great photos, and this is you sort of you got if you, if you had the pick of this uh, photo book about the um, Saxo Tinkoff. Yeah, team. Frederick Clement, sugar water recovery. Um, he spent a year with them, right? Yeah. This is yeah. now what teams do, isn't it? They get their in-house photographer. It's happening, yeah. To spend yeah. a year with them. Yeah. And uh, he came up with some pretty good results by the looks of things. Have you seen the book? Yeah, we've, we've got yeah, a I mean, copy uh, somewhere. Uh, okay, okay, so one kicking around. We should right, have brought it I, th- I think what's unusual about, about the book, not about the actual uh, idea of producing a book based around a team, because that's not that new, but the um, I think the difference with this is 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 the fact that it's not particularly about the infrastructure around the team or about a particular individual in the team. It's, it's, it's about all of the riders. I mean, the obvious ones to focus on would be Alberto Contador, but there's as many pictures of, of, of the other riders um, in the team than there are of, of Alberto. So, I don't know, Frederick's a very uh, honest photographer. You know, he, he'll just, he just gets stuck in to what's in front of him and um, he doesn't wait for the for the shot you know he, he, he just gets stuck in and I think that comes across I mean the pictures that we've chosen I'd, we tried to choose like a, a picture from each race that he went on because he didn't go on all the races because that's another thing you've got to stress that would just that would be uh, that would be um, far too difficult logistically but what we were talking about a couple of days ago in fact was, was, was access and Frederick said he wouldn't do the job unless he had unlimited access to, to everything and I think you know, it, it, it's testament to the modern era that we get this access now, that any photographer can actually be entrenched in a team. If you'd suggested that 20 years ago, they'd have mm. dismissed it out of hand. You know, there was a point at which if you were a journalist and you turned up at a hotel at the tour, you'd, you'd be frog-marched out, you know. And yeah, now, with, with good reason in those days. I well, suppose. yeah, let's be honest. But, you know, the thing is, is I think that teams have realised that they need to do more of this because the fans want to... Not only do the fans want to see what goes on, but the fans want to believe in the teams again, and I think that's the only way. And if you let photographers like Frederick, and there's plenty of other photographers doing this sort of, sort of work, as, as we've said, it's not unique. But what is quite quite refreshing is that we're now in an era where there, there's a lot more openness about what teams get up to. Mm. Um, I mean, it's, as I say, it's been well documented. I mean, can you imagine being in the you know in the in the discovery team coach you know in Armstrong's era? You know that just would not happen. Um, but now you've got you've got photographer Scott Mitchell does a lot of work with Sky Team and he's there all the time he, and he's allowed everywhere. I mean that's the thing. I mean not absolutely everywhere, but you know the point is is that you, you, as a photographer, I mean the photographers that we speak to, they don't really want to do it unless they get everything, unless they get access to everything. When they get access to everything, they really want to do it. And the thing is, they want to do good by the team. It's not like they want to embarrass them or make it difficult for them or put them in situations that they don't want to be in they, they you know they want to tell the story as it is but they don't want to make it hard for Who, who's paying who's paying these embedded uh, photographers well, the team, somebody team. in the team so I mean is there an issue there in terms of journalistic ethics and integrity I don't know if we want to get into that now but yeah there probably is 
Of course, but you isn't know, this, isn't that exactly what we should be getting <coughs> into in the podcast, guy? Come maybe, on. maybe we should. I don't know. <laughs> I, th- I think the difficult the difficulty is is that they've got to make a living, you know, and nobody around this table would hold that against them. You know, everybody needs to make a living, and I think if if they choose to make their living out of cycling and they choose to make their living out of working for a team in cycling, I have no problem with that. Mm. I don't. Th- I don't think that there's anything. I to suppose my problem is that if we are saying that embedded journalism and access to select journalists and photographers is the new era of transparency in cycling after its chequered past history, that is not really good enough. Yeah, no, no. Uh, Because you couldn't expect... A good investigation. I take to your be, point. To be I take conducted your point. by an embedded journalist no, or a paid journalist. Yeah, I take your point. But I think I think in the magazine, apart from this story, if you like, we generally have no callback from the team on what we do. You know, if they want us to come along and, and, and be embedded in the team for a week or during a race or whatever it might be, we will do that. But we won't say to them, well, you know, that's you know, there's any there's any deal to be done with them on that, if that makes sense. So. What we do is what we do, and if they want us to come along, we go along. And a lot of them do want us to go along. So I think it's in their interest to be open, and I think that's the that sense of openness now is, I just think, is a good thing. There has been a change. There's been a huge change. I mean, like for example, you go to a race like Paris Roubaix now, and um, last year in the press room there were there were journalists from all different backgrounds and doing their usual thing for newspapers, websites, whatever, magazines like ourselves but there's 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 even more journalists who are working for for brands and for and for teams that are trying uh, uh using the race to get accreditation and to to write stories now on the face of that i don't have a problem with it your point which i think you're trying to make which i kind of understand is where's the truth in that and i think the answer to that really is the truth is is the fact that a lot of these people doing it want to do good work essentially they want to be remembered for doing good work they don't want to be remembered for just towing the party line and shooting the stuff that the the brands and the and the sponsors have asked them to do it's muddied the water though you know of course it's muddied the water and it it makes it difficult for 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 small magazines like ours like independent magazines that want to do their own thing and want to be quite uh edgy if you like it makes it it makes it increasingly difficult for us to get accreditations and to get permissions to do stuff and it also makes it difficult i suppose in the marketplace because there are a lot of lost leader magazines that are very much ruler alike i suppose it's a compliment yeah and i'll be totally honest you know i've done work for brands you know i can't i can't deny that i hope that that work is recognized as being good work and and that's i think that's the bottom line i think i think the photographers that are very very talented photographers working embedded with teams like frederick like scott mitchell you know, and like photographers that have worked with us, Camille McMillan's working with Baku Cycling Project this year. You know, they're they're all talented photographers that want to work in the cycling industry, and I have no problem with that. And I think that's the thing. I think it's the difficulty is that some people view it quite cynically, and I and 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 I, and I don't think we do. You know, at least I hope we don't. Ian, what do you think? No. When it's a whitewash job, you 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 kind of see through it. It it it's, it's usually pretty obvious. Yeah. Um, if it's good work then uh, no problem I just fear that teams are going to control what is written about them no I don't think in a very light kind of light way but it's sort of insidious way 
um, and that they will saturate the channels of communication relating to their team uh, or their brand um, and they will only give access to the people that they want to give access to um, and those who have a different perspective or are interested in a different issue won't get access and therefore you won't find those issues talked about yeah i i i see your point i, th- I think <laughs> take an issue the issue that is concerning me which is this weight loss mm-hmm. in in the peloton um that you have these people who just look like in the especially particularly in the in the grand tours and the contenders who look emaciated mm. it doesn't look healthy to me no. and you cycle around and you look at a lot of amateur riders desperately thin you know the, the kids young men as well as women anorexic mm. or borderline anorexic mm. now that is an issue in cycling it's never talked about never written about uh, if you were going in to a team to look at that and to and and to try and understand okay what are the health consequences on the people who subject themselves to these kind of weight loss programs you're not going that, that's not going to be a popular story to write well in the same way that the the, the drugs issue was a, a, a very very tricky one to write i mean the people that have been consistent on it are the people that have been borne out on it and i think it will be the same with the weight loss issue because not wanting to give away too much we've we've, we've been investigating that one already and and we're looking to do a feature on it in the future so you know if there's anybody who wants to get in touch with us and talk about it more than happy to talk about it um but i think you are right because no no team really wants to be seen as you know endorsing you know um endorsing riders making themselves ill i think i think if it's the truth i think that's the thing that we we would always want to 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 explore the truth rather than the, the made up um you know the hearsay part of it so rather than comment on it and say, oh, well, you know, they're all bulimic or they're all, they all have eating, eating disorders, I'd rather find out the truth of it first. Well, I think the interesting thing is you'd, you'd uh, amongst the current generation, I think you'd probably find it easier to get them to talk about drug misuse than, than yeah. eating disorders. It, it's, it's, it's probably it's the great unspoken one of the... Of the current generation I don't know it probably goes back a while but um, I do know of one very high profile British rider who was sacked from his team only a few years back uh, because he had an eating disorder so what you know what, what's that about hmm. uh, but it, I think that's 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 something that would teams I think would be would find difficult it would be the actual reasons why riders are laid off and you know the support network that there is for cyclists. And we were talking earlier about what cyclists do when they retire. Well, they don't certainly don't get much support from their teams. You know, the teams let them go, and that's the end of it. Um, you know, and I think that's that's probably something that could be talked about, in, in, certainly in the magazine. And I'd be happy to do a feature about that because there's several cases of riders that have ended up in in pretty dire straits after being dropped by a team. So, you know what the thing is. It's not all about the teams, you know. That's 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 the bottom line. Is that cycling is 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 such a peculiar industry because there are so many elements to it. And it goes back to my point earlier about 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 um, bike brands being involved in sponsoring teams. I actually think bike brands are a little bit more open to that sort of thing than previous sponsored teams that are run by management. Um, uh, management companies so well, they're, they're advertising to a cycling audience rather than to the general public precisely yeah, yeah. it's in their interest too because yeah. the thing is the cycling public wants to see people racing clean healthily and fairly so you know 
that's 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 kind of that's that will be the image that they want to produce but present sorry and but i think you can't fake that like ian was saying you can't make stuff up you know it just doesn't happen and i know that i know most of the journalists i know that work with teams if if they were asked to do that they would flatly say no i know that i'm not saying all journalists are honorable by any stretch but you know (laughs) in cycling you know we're, we're we're not a bad bunch let's be honest well, we shall see how it turns out. Um, <laughs> elsewhere in the issue, um, you can read the second part of Duncan Forbes' um, photographic essays. Uh, this one looking at the question of how suffering is portrayed in cycle sport photography. Um, you can read Matt Seaton's column on trainer dilemmas, a good winter column, and um, Robert Miller on leadership challenges which um, is which is particularly um, yeah. <laughs> poignant <laughs> <laughs> definitely is this. that's a, it's a good one that one um he's very sparky as robert isn't he oh yeah the competition we've kept you waiting for ages oh yes competition, Com- competition for um, a copy of copy should you wish to win a copy of the fabulous copy uh by herbie sykes uh answer this question what was the first year that the carrefour de labra was used in the tour in the Harry Roubaix. Okay, and so the first email year in which the Carrefour de l'Arbre featured in Paris Roubaix. Email your answer to competitions. Is it? Yes. Ruler.cc. Com- competitions at ruler.cc. Is that competitions with an S? Yes. Plural. Plural. Okay, good. Yeah. Good. These things matter <laughs> in the digital age. Thanks, gents, both. It's a terrific you, issue. And uh, see you again next time. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. Thanks for downloading this edition of the Ruler podcast. You can read Ruler magazine, which comes out eight times a year, by taking out a subscription. Go to www.ruler.cc. Or you can pick up the latest edition at a growing number of bookshops and bike shops. If you've got an iPad you can read the magazine on the iPad. Not only the current issue, but a handful of back issues as well. You'll find it in the Apple Bookstore. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.